Okay, good morning. We have the privilege this week of studying Parshas Mishpatim. We're moving from the narrative, the story of the birth of our family and the birth of our nation into law. Parshas Mishpatim is the first in that transition into law. And then we're going to continue with the Parshas that depict the Mishkan and then we get into Sefer Vayikra until we get back to the narratives of Sefer Bamidbar. I want to express our gratitude this morning. The Parsha class is sponsored Leila Nishmas Bernard Sullivan, Allah Shalom, Dovber ben Aaron Halevi, and Lester Friedman, Eliezer Tzvi ben Avram, by their children and grandchildren, Cindy and Avi Schreier, Yoni Jackie and Ellie Schreier, Gila Tali, Ariel Sara, Sarit, and Aliza Schreier, who listen online and called in to generously sponsor. So thank you, our Divrei Torah should serve Le'iloi Nishmasam. Ve'ilaha Mishpatim, our parsha begins with the letter Vav. Unusual, the Vav. Why doesn't it begin? Eilaha Mishpatim. These are the laws. We were all taught in school as young children, you do not begin a sentence with the word and. So why does the Torah begin our parsha with the word and? These are the laws. Might as well say, these are like the laws, like Ve'ila HaMishpatim. Why the Vav? So Rashi famously comments, Komokom Shenem are Eila, Pasal Sarishonim. Ve'ila Mosef Alarishonim. When you begin a sentence with the word Eila, these you are distinguishing, you are creating contrast from what came before. But when you include the letter Vav, Ve'ele, then you are not seeking contrast, but rather you're seeking to expand upon, to add on to that which comes before. So Rashi tells us, That just as what you heard, just as the Aseris Adibros were given at our Sinai, just as the Decalogue were given as the monumental Ten Commandments, and we all know the first two we heard divinely, first two we heard directly from the Ribbon Shalola, but we know through the pomp and circumstance of Matan Torah, they all come from Hashem. So too, everything subsequent, everything you will learn, everything in Mishpatim, says Rashi, also, Af Elu, Misinai. These two come, Misinai. To me, this is one of, if not the most important Rashi in the Torah. I say this every year, so you'll forgive me if you remember or heard it. But Rashi's telling us something so important. Last week we read the story of Kabbalah Satorah, the seminal event, the milestone, the auspicious moment of standing at Harsinai, of the heavens speaking to earth, of the pomp and circumstance, the Cholo'am Roim Asakolos, seeing the sounds, revelations so true that you saw concepts, seeing as believing as if they were right in front of you. It was nothing short of an extraordinary religious experience. <laughs> To stand there and to hear the voice of the Almighty God was uplifting, was transformational, was incredible. And then we come to this week. And now the Torah continues, not with a religious experience, but tells us tort law, civil law, criminal law, religious law, Parshas Mishpatim, if you enjoy law, it's incredible. If you don't enjoy law, it's a miserable Parsha. The law after law after law after law of every area regulating and legislating every area of life. Interpersonal relationships, business, damages, compensation, wages, the obligation of helping the poor, the destitute, of sensitivity and of compassion. There's laws of kashras, there's laws of the holidays. You have every area of law represented in Mishpatim. And what Rashi is telling us through the letter Vav is, lest you think that religion is relegated to the shul, lest you think that religious experience is reserved or isolated 
For when you are in a religious context, in the Beis Amikdash, in Shul, in the Beis Medrash, V'eleh HaMeshvatim, V'eleh, you know where the continuation of our Sinai takes place? Not only in your Shul, but V'eleh HaMeshvatim, the continuity of our Sinai, the next step of our Sinai, Parshish Meshvatim after Yisro tells us, you know where Judaism is practiced? V'eleh HaMeshvatim, it's how you conduct yourself at work, it's your honesty in business dealings, it's your pursuit of justice and of charity and of sensitivity and of kindness. It's how you act in the supermarket and at the gym and on the street. It's who you are as a person. This is, to me, so fundamental and so distinct to our religion and sadly all too neglected. There are people who shuckle and daven the kavana and they're the firmest people in the four walls of the shul. And then you meet them in a business context or you meet them in a social gathering and all of a sudden they're another person. The Lashon Hara, they're rude and prude and crude, they're dishonest, they're manipulative, they're ruthless. You've had religious experience at Harsinai. The Vavachibur, the continuity of Harsinai is not just when you go into shul and when you take your talus off or you take whatever that thing is called to keep the women warm off, not the equivalent of a talus, I'm not getting myself into trouble here but when you take off whatever you wear in shul you don't become a different person this Rashi not just what was given at our Sinai is part of the religious experience but the way we conduct ourselves in every area of life is part of the religious experience. Okay, the overview of the parsha, and then we're going to get into our psukim, but that is so critical to understand. Why mishpatim? It's almost a letdown. It's so anticlimactic. Yisro is unbelievable. I'll tell you exactly what this is like. Let me give you the ultimate metaphor. It's as if, it's as if on the honeymoon, the couple stand under the chuppah and the rabbi talks about love and romance and their beautiful personalities that they fell in love with one another and the long, happy life they're going to live and the hearts are fluttering. All It's beautiful. And then they go on the honeymoon and the husband and wife exchange. Okay, and here are the rules. The cap goes on the toothpaste. The toilet seat gets put down. The garbage is taken out Mondays and Thursdays. So Sunday and Wednesday night you got to take out the garbage. You're going to pay the bills and I'm going to do the this. So you'd say, well, on the honeymoon? What are you kidding me? They can't wait? Already? You're being mocked? Now you're exchanging the lists of expectations? And the answer is yes. Because a marriage is not made up of what happens under the chuppah, surrounded by friends and family and love and romance. And that's not marriage, as you all know better than I. Marriage is only because you've lived it longer. Most. I don't mean better than I. I what happens, you skip a Pasha class a couple weeks, you're out of practice. Yeah. So, marriage is made up of the little things. It's how you conduct yourself when no one's looking. There is no audience watching the chuppah. It's the little efforts you make and sensitivities that, you, that you're vigilant of. And so to ve'elam the honeymoon of Parshas Yisro, the honeymoon of standing under the chuppah with the Rebbe Shalom at Sinai, is ve'elam You love me? There's romance, you're committed, you're devoted, you want to be a sacred people, you want to be a covenantal community. How do you treat the poor and the orphan and the widow? Are you strict in justice? Are you honest in business dealings? How do you carry yourself in every area of religious life? Because it's it was all given at Harsinai. And that's the overview of the Parsha. The rest of the Parsha is commentary. 
It's the details, it's the technicalities, it's the minutiae of the laws, which are all critically important. But if you neglect the overriding principle that that who you are in a business context is a religious mandate, is a religious experience that's part of your religious personality, no less than how you shuckle and the kavana and the davening and the chumras and so on and so forth. Our parsha begins with the laws of Evid Ivri. The obligation, what happens if a Jewish slave, how does one become a Jewish slave? Either they run out of money and they sell themselves to raise money, or they've stolen and they do not have the funds to pay back, and the court appoints them to be a Jewish slave. We use the term Jewish slave, Eved Ivri, but Eved is not what we think of as an Eved. Perhaps an Eved Kanani is those learning the Duff, just finished in the third parak of Gittin. Long uh, sugya is dealing with an Evid Kanani. An Evid Kanani perhaps fits more into the paradigm of what we think of as a slave, but an Evid Ivory is not a slave. An Evid Ivory is an individual who has made poor decisions in life that render them bankrupt, that render them destitute. And so the Torah creates a way for that person to live with someone else in a sort of rehabilitative context where that master, that Adon, so to say, can help rehabilitate the individual so that they can go back to leading a successful life. But the slave, the Jewish slave, the Ebed Ivri, is in fact treated better than the master. Taisus in Kedushin says that if the master is one pillow, who gets the pillow? The slave gets the pillow. The slave lives among Jewish family, eats with the Jewish family, interacts with the Jewish family, and has mentorship of the Jewish family. Which is why you might understand at the end of six years, that slave would want, not want to go free. Room and board an amazing mentor, stability. They might not want to go free. So the Torah says in the beginning of our parsha, if they in fact hesitate, they don't want to go free, what do we do? We place their ear against the doorpost and we pierce the ear. And why do we pierce the ear? So we all know, Rashi goes to Gemara, two reasons. Either because the ear that was at our Sinai and heard, Avadayim avadim avadim. We are servants. We serve the Almighty and the Almighty alone. And we do not sell ourselves into a position to serve another human. That ear that heard we are to serve God and not humans and failed and finds himself in a position of inevitability, we pierce that ear. Or alternatively, the ear that stood at our Sinai and heard, Lo signov, don't steal. And now this individual went and stole and didn't have the money to pay back. Now we pierce the ear. Which leads the Salat Rebbe the Nesiv Hashem to ask the following question. If that's the case, when should you pierce the ear? When should you pierce the ear? Immediately. Why do you wait six years? As soon as the individual sells themselves to be the slave, that's when they violated, that's when they neglected what they should have listened to, what they should have heard, what they should have absorbed through their ear. Either because they're selling themselves as a slave, they're violating Avadayim, or because they heard those signals and they went and stole so when is it that they violated what they heard at our Sinai? Immediately when they become an Evidivri. So why wait six years? Why is it only when the slave doesn't want to go free, that's when we pierce their ear? That's the question of the Slanam Rebbe. He gives his own answer. I have my own answer, but this is not what we're covering today, so I will leave that for you as a question. Just to tell you that I have a great answer that I'm not telling you. Okay. So that is the law of Evidivri. Torah then goes on and talks about a, a female, the slave, a sale of a daughter. We then go through many of tort law, criminal law, civil law, murder and manslaughter, killing a slave. What are the laws of bodily injury? What do you have to pay? Ayin tachas ayin, shein tachas shein, yad tachas yad, regel tachas regel. One of the primary psukim 
in which our Torah Shabbat Peh, our oral tradition is so glaring, without which we would interpret this entirely differently. Torah says what happens, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, and so on and so forth. With if you take literally, and there are societies, although it's hard to call them civilized societies, who continue to practice this today, they will cut off the limb with which one violated something in their, in their law. And our Torah on the surface seems to say the same, that if you do something, then you have to, you have to, uh, you pay back exactly. My nephew, whose uh, bar mitzvah it was recently, I get in trouble for saying this, he's a, he's a funny kid, so when he was learning this, he asked his parents, it says, you'll, you'll appreciate this if you understand mon- modern Hebrew. He said, Ayin tachas ayin, shein tachas shein. So, what if you hurt somebody in a specific part of their body? Would it be tachat, tachat, tachat? <laughs> so, anyway, if you take it literally, it means, if you take it literally, it means that you actually pay back by hurting that direct limb. Which is where the Torah Shabbat Peh kicks in and says, no, of course not. You evaluate the value of the limb that was damaged and you pay the value. We would never take retribution in that, in that exact fashion. Death caused by an animal. What happens to the owner of the animal who should have guarded? And here we have the Arba Avos Nezikin, the four archetypes of damages. We have uh, the boar. If you, if you have uh, property, real estate, which is not safeguarded, you are liable if somebody's damaged in your real estate. What if you have an animal that damages? You have liability based on the assumption of, of a responsibility that you had to guard and to observe, to watch vigilantly that animal to make sure it doesn't hurt anybody. You have fire, ash. What happens if you, are, you light a fire on your property but the fire goes to someone else's property and damages some, something? And you have man. What happens if a person themselves damages? A person punches or trips or someone is negligent. You ram someone with your car. What are all of the, uh, the laws? Um, we have the laws of Shomrim, the four types of Shomrim. What is the level of responsibility or liability that a person incurs? If I borrow something of yours, then I certainly have the highest level of responsibility because I have all the benefit and you have no benefit. That's if I borrow. What if I, uh, if I pay rent? So now you have a benefit, but still I'm in the position of getting the greatest benefit. What if you ask me to watch something and you're willing to pay me? Then I incur a high level of responsibility because I'm actually being paid to guard. And finally, a shomer chinam. What if I'm doing you a favor and I'm watching your object for you? So then I would have the least level of liability. So these are all the sugyas that our wonderful Torah Shabbat Peh, that our wonderful Gemara comes along and delves into and analyzes that there's a direct relationship proportional to my benefit is my level of responsibility. So if I borrow something from you, you are kind and gracious to lend something from me, then I have the highest level of responsibility and I would have to pay you. And so therefore, depending on what happens, let's say I lose the object. Let's say the object is stolen from under my watch. Let's say there's a freak accident and something happens to the object and it, and it breaks. What's my level of responsibility for Gneva, Va'aveda, for Pshia, and so on and so forth. Negligence, so it will be directly related, directly proportional to my benefit. So again, it goes if I borrow the object, I have the highest level of responsibility versus if I rent the object versus if I'm um, paid to watch the object versus if I'm asked to watch the object for free. The Dalit Shomrim, the laws are all relayed in our parsha. We have the laws of Onus and Mufata. What happens if a woman is, um, is raped? What happens if a woman is not physically raped? but she is seduced. She's verbally seduced um, in a way 
which uh, is against her will. There's a, a power hierarchy where a woman feels vulnerable and therefore she feels coerced, even if not physically, she is sociologically, emotionally, different ways that she can be coerced. What are the responsibilities and the obligations? The obligation to help the, uh, the poor and the downtrodden, to help those who are abandoned and who are helpless. You have to lend money and you're not allowed to charge interest. Um, the obligation to, if you take somebody's garment as collateral, you have to give it back to them for when they need it um, and be sensitive. You're not allowed to curse God, you're not allowed to curse His representatives. Um, and then we get to the section that we're going to study a little bit more in depth about the judicial process momentarily, going into Shemitah and going into Shabbos. You have the laws of the Shalosh Regolam. And then God, a little narrative, tells us that when we go into the land of Israel, He's going to send an angel. And Rashi and the Ramban here tell us this is a precursor. After the Chet Ego, after the sin of the golden calf, God says, you know what? You are an incorrigible people. You are a miserable people. So I was going to wipe you out, but Moshe threatened then erased me from the book. So God is forgiving, but to an extent. He's forgiving, but He says, you remain an Am Kishayorif. You're stubborn and incorrigible. I-, I can't dwell among you. I'm sending an angel. I'm sending an ambassador to take you into the land of Israel. And here there's a foreshadowing of this when God says, I'm sending an angel to guard you and to bring you to that place that I've guarded. And it leads to a whole discussion in the Ramban we're not going to get to, but if that event had not yet happened, why is God already telling them what's going to be? Do they not have free will? Why is this as if predetermined and predestined? What's going on here about entering the land? And then we have the famous section we associate with last week, but it really is this week. Nasa Venishma was not said last week's Parsha in anticipation of Harsinai. Here when the Torah is really telling us the more complete picture of the experience of Matan Torah, the very end of our Parsha, here we have that expression, Nasa Venishma, the expression that we know the Jewish people earned great merit for. We put, we will do even before we will listen. We spoke about last year. What's the big deal of saying we will listen after you say we will do? If you're committed to do, obviously you need to now listen to what it is you need to do. So why Nasa Venishma? It should be Nasa is the, we spoke about that last year. And finally, God calls Moshe up onto the mountain. Another one of my favorite Divrei Torah I've repeated countless times. God says to Moshe, ascend onto the mountain and be with me there. What does that mean? It's redundant. If Moshe ascends to the mountain, where else is he? Of course he's on top of the mountain. So once God says, ascend the mountain, why do you have to say, So Rashi says at the end of our parsha, what does mean? Remain there. Don't just come up on the mountain, but pack a suitcase. You're coming for 40 days. You're going to be a little while. That's Rashi's interpretation. But I've shared with you before, an alternative interpretation is, Moshe, come up onto the mountain. Now I know Moshe, says God, there are two to three million people counting on you. I can't imagine how many emails and text messages. I can't imagine how many phone calls you have to return. There's so much weighing on you. Your mind must be so scattered. You have a million things to do. But when you come onto that mountain, be there. Be with me. Don't be what psychologists call absent present. They coined a phrase which is so 21st century. Absent presence is when you're physically somewhere, but you're entirely absent. Next time you go out to eat, look around the restaurant, and you will see couples who are absent present. Right? They think their, cal- their calendar will reflect that they went out to eat together, but they're each on the cell phone, texting, looking, reading. They may be sitting opposite one another, 
but they're absent present. Next time you go to the park and you see a mom or dad pushing a kid on a swing, but they're on the phone, looking at the phone, texting the phone, scrolling the phone, posting to the phone. So their calendar will reflect that they were at the park with their child, but their child's upbringing will not reflect that they were with the parent because they're absent present. So this is the origin of absent presence. Moshe, God says to Moshe, don't you dare be absent present with me. You're going to come on top of that mountain, if you come up on that mountain, be there with me. I wrote a whole article about this recently in the most recent edition of Klal Perspectives, which is a great journal, not just because it has an article of mine, but it's a great journal. So Klal Perspectives, the most recent journal, the edition is entirely on the topic of technology and how technology is impacting us and what we can do about it. It's a, it's a journal which is available online. Klal, K-L-A-L, Klal Perspectives. If you Google it, and uh, I wrote an article all about within technology, how technology is making us absent present. And I quote the Zvort, So earlier in our parsha, one last introductory thought, and then we'll get to our specific uh, psukim. But earlier in our parsha, we had the pasuk of Kol Almana V'yasam Lo Se'anun. Don't cause any pain to a widow or an orphan. Right? We said that's where that's where religious life has really lived. Rav Asher Weiss, Shlita, our distinguished guest this past Shabbos, gave an amazing drasha on Shabbos morning. And he talked about the two luchos, ben adam l'makam, ben adam l'chavero. Each is its own tablet, because they're both important, and you are an incomplete Jew. If you're makbid on your relationship with God, if between man and God you're perfect, but between man and man you're deficient, you are a holy, W-H, holy, incomplete Jew. He didn't quote the mabit, but there's an amazing mabit. Rav Shechter is fond of quoting. The mabit says... Which of the luchos has more words? The first five commandments or the second five commandments? The first five commandments have many, many, many more words than the second. Think about the second commandment. I mean, half the commandments are two words long. So the second tablet has many fewer words. Which means what, says the Mabit? If God wanted the tablets to look equal for the text to cover the entire face of the tablet, then what needed to be done on the second tablet to allow its text to cover the entire tablet. What had to be done was its font. Right? Kids today, I'm sure all of you remember, but when you write your paper and you're supposed to fill up a certain amount of pages, so you play with the font. You play with the font. Triple space, 90 font. You know, you play with the font. So the Mabit says, the font on the second luach, the second tablet, was much bigger than the font on the first tablet because we wanted the text to take up the entire tablet just like the first. So now if you're looking at the Aseris Adibros, on the right-hand tablet, Beinadam Lamakom, you have small font because you have much more text that you have to fit onto that surface. On the left tablet, Beinadam Lachavero, you have much less text, you want it to complete the tablet so it's much bigger font. So now you're looking at the tablets, which one is going to jump off the tablet at you? Which one is going to scream to you? Which one looks like a billboard? Says the Mabit Ben Adam Lechavero. And that was by design. Because God says, when you look at my tablets, I want you to read about your relationship with me in the fine print, and in the large font, I want you to read about your relationship with fellow man. That the emphasis Ben Adam Lechavero, that if you're not complete in Ben Adam Lechavero, you're incomplete in your Ben Adam Lemakam. Rav Asher Weiss coined a fantastic phrase on Shabbos morning. He said, Judaism demands the balance, the pursuit of passion and compassion. Passion Ben Adam Lemakam and compassion Ben Adam Lechavero. It was a great, great phrase from somebody whose first language is Yiddish. So anyway, our parasha says, 
Don't cause pain to a widow or an orphan. That's the ve'ela hamishpatim. That's where religious life is lived. Our Torah tells us, if you're mean, if you're cruel, if you neglect the widow and the orphan, they're going to scream out to me, says God. And you know what? I'm going to listen. And I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to wipe you out. You know what's going to happen? You neglect the widow and the orphan? I'm going to make your wives widows. I'm going to make your children orphans. Because I'm going to take you out. Because if you're insensitive to their plight, I'm going to give your family a little taste of that medicine to see how it feels. The Chizkuni, the great 13th century French parish, the Chizkuni points out that all the other mitzvahs in our parsha, civil law, jurisprudence, laws of loans, damages, Shabbos, holidays, obligations, all the other laws in our parsha are written Balashan Yachid. They're written to the individual. But these laws, how you treat the widow and the orphan, is written Balashan Rabbin in the plural. And why, says the Chizkuni? Why should they be different than all the other laws? So the Chizkuni answers, to make a long and short of it, Chizkuni explains that evil is not necessarily practiced actively. There's passive, non-aggressive evil. And that's when a society is negligent. When a society, when widows and orphans, when individuals who feel alone are invisible to society, society is doing something terribly, terribly wrong. So says the Chizkuni, this commandment is written in the plural because while there's a directive to each and every individual, the entire community is measured by this mitzvah. All of society bears the iniquity, whether actively or passively, because they are encouraging oppression if they're negligent. So the mitzvah is written, Balash and Rabin, because the community is measured by the culture it sets, by the atmosphere and the attitude it has and how it takes care of these individuals. The Ksava Kabbalah of Yaakov Mecklenburg, Rabbi Yaakov C. Mecklenburg, in his Ksava Kabbalah, says that, um, that the word almana, that the Torah uses for a widow, doesn't just mean a widow. The word almana means al-maneh. What's a maneh? If you go to Israel, you order a slice of pizza. You ask for a maneh, a portion. Maneh is a portion. An almana is an al-maneh. It's someone who's missing a portion. It's missing. They're lacking something in their life. And says the Ksava Kabbalah, this law to be focused and sensitive and careful of and mindful of, the almana is not only true for the literal widow, but it's true about anyone who's almaneh, anyone who's missing something, anyone who's going through a hard time, anybody who's experienced a loss or struggling or suffering deserves our sensitivity and kindness. So the Cheskuni says, why is it Balash and Rabbim in the plural? Because that's how a community is measured. I might as well make a plug right now. It's coming Shabbos. Our buddy system and greeter committee have organized an Invite Your Neighbor Shabbos, which is everyone's had over the neighbor that they know and like and go way back with, but you have neighbors that you don't know. You wave to when you're taking out the garbage cans together, but you may even know their name and you think you're a good neighbor because you know their name. But... You don't really know. So they've designated the Shabbos asking the members of our community to identify someone who's a neighbor who they don't know well to go out of their comfort zone and invite and invite someone over. That is the way that a community is measured. Okay, now that we're almost done with the shir, let's get into the psukim and begin. Let's start. So I want to begin um <coughs> Perch of Gimel. Perch of Gimel, Pasuk Aleph. 
chapter 23, verse 1. Although I do have to go back one pasuk and tell you a great thing I just heard from Rav Shechter. I just listened to a shir by Rav Shechter about how to ask a shayla. The importance of shaylas, how do you ask a halachic shayla. So he says the following. Look at the pasuk right before what we're about to study. The last pasuk of Perak Chav Beis. It says, Anshay Kodesh Tiyunli, be for me a sacred people. Ubasar basada treifa lo sochelu and meat in the field of a treifa don't eat, an animal it's not kosher. What should you do with that meat? You give the meat to the dog. And why that is and what's the background of it is for another time. But Rav Shechter said the following Yiddish folklore, he said, tells the following story about a farmer who used to come in from the farm every week to two weeks to ask the Rabbi Shailas about his animals, about the kashas of the animals. And he came for years to see the rabbi. And then a couple of weeks went by, a couple of months went by, and the farmer was nowhere to be found. He didn't come see the rabbi. And finally he came back again. So the rabbi said to him, where have you been? Have you had no shilas? So the farmer answered, no, I have had shilas. But I was told, someone told me, that the Pasuk says, when you have basar basada trefa, if you have meat and you're not sure whether it's trefa or kosher, lakelav tashlichon put it in front of the dog. And if the dog eats it, it was treif. And if the dog doesn't eat it, then you know it's kosher. So I figured, why schlep in? Why schlep in anymore from the field? All the way to come see you in the city, in the town, the rabbi. Every time I had a question about my chicken or about the meat, I put it in front of the dog in order to get the answer to the Shiloh. So the rabbi said, okay, so why are you back? If you did that for the last few months, why are you back? He said, why am I back? Because the dog is way too machmir. So, anyway, Rav Shechter brought that as an example. Rav Shechter brought that Yiddish folklore as an example of how people, uh, how some people ask shilas or deal with shilas incorrectly or inaccurately. That's not what the pasuk means. That you put the meat in front of the dog for the dog to uh, to paskin. Okay, Perach of Gimel pasuk Aleph. That's where we're going to begin. Do not accept a false report and do not extend your hand to the wicked to be a false to be a false witness. Look at Rashi. Unclos translates it. Do not accept What's Dishkar? Azhara Lamakaba Lashanhara. Our Pasak is telling us, Losis Hashem Ashav. You know, if somebody testifies falsely, there's testifying falsely in a court, right? Even though they took an oath to be honest, they then relay information that's inaccurate, they're testifying falsely in court. But every time that we speak Lashanhara, we're also testifying falsely. Right? Certainly if it's inaccurate, if it's not true. If you're saying gossip, you're saying rumors, you're saying something about someone which is distorted, which is not true, then you're violating losisa shema shav. You are offering false testimony. I, I love this idea because what Rashi is telling us is that the way we interact with one another in life is with the assumption that we have credibility. That we have credibility. And in fact, in our everyday exchanges, there's an essential uh, assumption or trust that it's testimony. When I ask you about something and you tell me, I'm accepting that as testimony. And when you distort it, when you're inaccurate about it, when you say Lashon Hara, then you are offering false testimony. So in other words, the notion of our credibility and the notion of testimony is not something which is reserved for the context of a courtroom. 
but it's true in everyday life. It's true in everyday life. I, uh, I wrote an article a couple weeks ago about being careful um, in our attitude towards time, as you saw from when we began. I'm still working on implementing it. But an article about being much more careful about time. And one of the arg- I quoted an article from Forbes magazine, and one of the points that the author there made is, we lack credibility if we say to someone we're going to meet them at a certain time, and we don't follow through on what we said, then we lose our credibility. We've testified falsely because we said we'd be somewhere. So, you know, the principles of life, which happens to be one candidate is repeating often these days, is, you know, say what you said you're going to do and tell the truth means that it's not just for a courtroom that we are to behave in those ways. What Rashi is telling us is, this is a principle and rule of life. So, Lasisa Shema Shav, says Rashi, this is an Azhara, this is a prohibition against Lashon Hara. And then Rashi quotes a second interpretation. And this is also fantastic. It's a fantastic interpretation. Um, it's so important. I do a lot of mediation when people have business disputes, financial disputes, marital disputes. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin learns from our Pasuk that you are forbidden from hearing one side of the story without the other person present. Forbidden for hearing one side of the story without the other person present. Not just that you have to hear the other side of the story, but the way the first person will relay the story will be very different in the presence of their adversary than the way that they would relay it if their adversary were not there. So the Gemara Sanhedrin here learns that if there's a Beisden... I remember we once... There was a very um, prominent dispute happening in the community. And three Rashi Yeshiva from Yeshiva University flew down to serve as a Beisden. And one of the litigants was there on time and the other litigant was delayed. And the Rashi Yeshiva were going to have to fly back and the window of opportunity for this litigation was closing. And the one who was present kept asking the Rosh Yeshiva, it's not fair, I was on time, we have to start. Let me tell you my side. And when he gets here, he'll tell you his side. He's late, it's his problem. And the Rosh Yeshiva, the Dayanim said, no, Losisa Shema Shav. It's a Beferish Gemara in Sanhedrin, it's quoted in Allah, but a Dayan is not allowed to hear one side without the other side being there. Again, because it will temper the way the first side, it will force the first person to think, are they saying it entirely accurately? Would they have the brazenness to say that this way in front of the other person? So it's a very interesting halacha (coughs) that Rashi is quoting as the second interpretation. And then the Pasuk continues, what does Rashi, what does the Pasuk mean when it says, and don't testify, don't extend your hand with a wicked, with a Hamas, which is a false testimony. It means don't recruit your friend to, uh, to work with, to partner with somebody who's saying something untrue. Let's look at some of the other Mephoshim, the way they interpret this, uh, this Pasuk. The Ibn Ezra says, Atoshes Yodcheim Rasha, Lishchaber imo be'edoshav, Lasos Hamas Lenaki. Don't partner, don't collaborate or conspire with someone about how to testify falsely, and then you're going to Lasos Hamas Lenaki. Why, what bothers the Ibn Ezra is, why does the Torah refer to this is, Lios Eid Hamas, a witness of Hamas. What does the word Hamas mean? Go back to Parshish Noah. When God brings a flood to the world, it was because the world was filled with Hamas. What does Hamas mean? Not in Arabic or the, the terror organization, although it's not a coincidence, I'm sure. But Hamas means 
robbery, thievery. That's what it meant in, when the Mabel came to the world. So the Ibn Ezra is bothered. Why is this false witness described as a witness of Hamas? And the Ibn Ezra is explaining. Because when a person conspires to testify falsely, and then therefore get the judgment with the wrong party, they've stolen from the just party. And that's what the Ibn, Ibn Ezra is saying. You're going to create Hamas, you're going to steal Lenaki from the innocent person. What's the connection to what's going on here in the Parsha? Says the Ibn Ezra, because who is most vulnerable, who is most tempted to be able to testify falsely? The poor person. Because the poor person who doesn't know how they're putting their next meal on the table is the most vulnerable to be recruited by the rich person to be paid to go testify falsely on their behalf. So that's what Ibn Ezra is saying. This warning is coming. Sforno, Sforno writes, Lachtom imo al-shtar. Ka'amram al-anshay yushalayim shalay yichosman al-shtar elam ken yodim mi chosam imayim. Sforno says another layer of interpretation. So you'll say, I would never go to court and testify falsely. Are you kidding me? I have some scruples. I could never be recruited to conspire with someone else to concoct a false testimony and extract money illegally and unjustly. But says the Sforno, another layer of interpretation. You know what else it means? Don't partner, don't extend your hand to a bad witness. Be careful who you sign documents with. When you're signing on a contract, you'll say, well, I'm not offering testimony, I'm just signing a document. I don't really care who else signs, that's their business. They have to defend their name, their trustworthiness, their credibility, their their integrity, thank you. But my name is my name. So says the Sforn, no. And quotes the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that Anshe Yerushalayim, the virtuous people of Yerushalayim, would not sign a contract without reviewing and knowing with whom they were signing the contract. They wouldn't sign a contract and then someone else would come along and sign it. Or they wouldn't meet a complete stranger and sign with them. They would do their research before they were willing to sign a contract with anyone else. That's another layer of interpretation of the, of the Sforno. Um, the Rashbam has another interpretation. This is a third or fourth interpretation. It says the Rashbam, just like the witnesses warned. Don't testify falsely with someone. Here it is the uh, justices. Here it is the Dayanim who are warned to be careful in reviewing the testimony they receive. You have an obligation to investigate. It says the Rashbam now, a fourth or fifth interpretation. You might say to yourself, you know, how many witnesses does it take in a Jewish court in order to provide conclusive proof? Two witnesses. Two witnesses. Two kosher witnesses. Two witnesses. So let's say there are two wicked, nefarious, lying witnesses who are about to testify. They'll say, look, it's already the judgment's going to go with them because they've got the two. So what's the difference if I'm the third? They asked me to come with them. I'm going to lose business if I don't join with them. I'm going to be ostracized socially if I don't join with them. So let me go join with them. And I'm not really the one who's doing anything wrong because they already have their two witnesses. And even though they are extracting money illegally, unethically, because they're lying, I'm just going along with it. And, and they would have been able to succeed without me because they had the two. I'm just the third. 
says the Rashbam. That's what the Pasuk is telling us. Lo Hashem is no. Don't ever bear false witness, even if your testimony is not directly causing the damage. But you should be incapable of the false testimony, even if it is not what is directly causing the damage. Okay, Pasuk base. Lo rabim don't follow the majority for evil don't go after the majority if they're wrong number one and don't respond by giving to the majority which will pervert law what's going on over here so this the Torah is warning us that you might be tempted to say look I think that the party is innocent but if the majority think they're guilty, then I might be wrong. And you know what? It's important to have a unanimous ruling. I'm a consensus guy. I'm not going to voice my opposition. I'm not going to voice my hesitancy or my reluctance. I'm not going to voice my opinion or my analysis. Because Akhari Rab, I'm just going to go with the majority. I'm a consensus person. I'm the easiest. Don't make any waves. I'm going along. That's where the Torah comes along here and says, so brilliantly, no, you have an obligation. You have an obligation to speak your mind. You have an obligation to advocate for what you think is just and what you think is true. And if what you think the majority are wrong, then you have to speak up against the majority. Is that, is that not a summary, by the way, of all of Judaism? We are a minority of the minority of the entire world. Now we don't say, you know what, well, look, the Christianity, they well outnumber us. The Muslims, they well outnumber us. The world, the unaffiliated, well outnumber us. <coughs> so we might as well give up. To a certain degree, uh, looking at this passage today, it occurs to me, to a certain degree, this is the mission statement of the Jewish people. Pursue the truth even if you find yourself in the minority because you have an obligation to remain true to your values and to who you are. In fact, that Gemara in Sanhedrin talks about the Dayanim hear the case, they hear the litigants, and now they go to um, confer with one another. What order do they speak? So the halacha is that, let's say if I were ever on a Beisden with Rav Shechter, who should speak first? So on the one hand, it would show greater covet, greater honor, the Shechter should speak first, of course. The Rosh Hashiva, an outstanding Tamachacham, great Posik. He should speak first, my Rebbe. But what's going to happen if he speaks first? What are the chances I'm going to disagree? <laughs> so that's why the Allah says you go from the smallest person on the basin up to the biggest one. It's so important. You know, I find myself sometimes in, in committee meetings where I say I want to speak last because as the rabbi, people might not express their opinion. If, uh, if I say my opinion and they disagree, turns out it's not such a problem. But they might not, uh, they might not express their opinion if they're worried they're going to offend uh, the rabbi. So the halacha is even, in, in other words, we care about the truth. The truth is an incredible value. So we orchestrate the way the justice system, its governance, its process, its protocols in order to give the greatest chance at arriving at the truth. So here this Pasuk is telling us that don't just go along. Don't say, look, they got the majority. So I lost. When we put it to a vote, I'm going to lose. So what's the point in saying my opinion? When they put it to the vote, I lost. I'm the minority. I want to go consensus. Let's have a unanimous vote. I'm going to remain silent. Shashtil. Says the Torah, no. You can't go with the majority. If you think they're wrong and you think you're right, you're an absolute, you have an absolute obligation to express what you think. Look at the Rashbam, Pasuk Beis. If they're coming to an erroneous conclusion according to you. 
Lemerubim. Even though they're not going to listen to you, you'll be outvoted. You'll be outvoted. You still have an obligation to speak. This Forno says similarly. When you're asked, what's your opinion? Your answer shouldn't be, it doesn't matter what I think, we'll go by the majority. Don't just go with the flow. Say what you think. You're obligated to weigh in. Now, you might be disposed. That if there's a woman sitting opposite you, not a woman, I was about to say something about a woman. If there's a Dao, if there looks like an underdog sitting in front of you, if there is a, um, a poor person or a person who is uh, who's, um, missing something in their life, so you're going to be predisposed to want to show kindness and compassion to them. So before either of them even open up their mouth, you're going to say, this one's the Nebuch, right? So the, the billionaire gets into a financial debate or dispute with a member of your Tom Chishab's family. And now they come before you for judgment. And they're arguing, and the billionaire says, it's not only the money, it's a matter of principle. They st- I want the- they're wrong, I'm right, so we're here for the Beisdin. So the Dayanim are going to look at the Dal, they're going to look at the member, the person who's on Tom Chishab's. They're going to look on the person who, if they don't have this money, then, then you're going to have to find food for them for Shabbos. And you're going to tell me that they're not going to be influenced to want to decide like the poor person? So after the Torah again says, no. Justice is so true. This, there's, there's business and there's compassion. Sometimes people call me and they want to hire a certain person. And they say, what do you think? They're really on the down and out and they really need help. And often, obviously, I encourage them. That's wonderful. That's great. That's beautiful. But there are times I say there's a reason the person's on the down and out. Their jobs haven't worked out because they're really not very competent. And so you're making a mistake. Don't do it. I tell the people, business is business and chesed is chesed. So if you want to donate money to me to help them through chesed, we'll help them through chesed. But don't hire them for your business because it's going to end up being not a chesed when when the whole thing doesn't work out. So chesed is chesed and business is business. And justice is justice and chesed is chesed. Vidalo said Darbirivo, don't be predisposed to help the poor person because you're going to use the justice system in order to help the person who's lacking. No, truth is truth and justice is justice and honesty is honesty and it has to be, it has to be something which is served. That's what Rashi says. Lo sedar, lo sachal Says Rashi, don't give great honor and don't find arguments and don't come to the preconceived conclusion that the poor person is, is, uh, is correct. Vilomar <coughs> and say, Dalu is poor. Let me figure out a way for him to win because he really needs the money. That's not the way that you serve justice. It's not the way that you serve the greater good. Okay. The Orachayim here has a beautiful interpretation too, but we don't have time. He says, the dispute, berivo, the poor person, berivo, in their argument with God, how could you make me poor, and so on, lo sedar, don't help the poor person in their argument with God by using the justice system to help them, to help them uh, succeed. You can look at the Orachayim, a beautiful interpretation. Next pasuk. Ki sivga shor o yivcha o chamaro to'eh, hashev teshivenu lo. If you encounter... The ox of your enemy or his donkey, 
And what's happening? They are uh, wandering. You shall surely return the donkey to, to him. Hashev tishivenu, the double language, means, so you see, you know, you see the, your, your friend's uh, property, and it's, gonna, it's lost, it's going to get destroyed, your friend's going to lose a lot of money. So your friend, you're going to run to return it to your friend. Pastor goes out of the way and says, even if it's your enemies, but we value property, and we value living as a, a proper citizen. You see, the Ve'ila Mishpatim also tells us something else. The Ve'ila Mishpatim also says, unlike American, American law dictates that I have to, to be a good American, you're not actually good. You're just not bad. <laughs> what makes a good American? I don't steal my taxes, I don't cheat, I don't lie, I don't this, I don't this, I don't this, I don't this. I'm a good American. I'm a good American citizen. But you're not actually good, you're just not bad. <laughs> Judaism demands us, mandates that we not only not be bad, but it actually legislates that we're good. And what does it mean to be good? It means to be kind to the orphan and the widow. It means if you see your enemy's property wandering around, then you're obligated to return it. Hashev Shivenu. Even if you bring it back and it escapes again, and you bring it back and it escapes again, you keep bringing it back. You could say, look, it's none of my business. Don't ask, don't tell. Close my eyes and keep walking. I'm not a bad person. Okay, I'm not an exceptional person, not a bad person. Judaism says you don't have the luxury of not being a bad person. In American law, if you're having a heart attack in front of me, I have no legal obligation to intercede to call 911 to try to give you CPR. Good Samaritan law says that if I try to give you CPR and I broke five of your ribs, you can't sue me. But I have no obligation to actually help you. If I want, I could close my eyes and walk away. But in Judaism, the Torah says you cannot walk away. And not only you're also obligated, if you see your friend's property about to be destroyed, you're obligated, you can't stand idly by or close your eyes to your friend's property being destroyed. And that too is alluded to and learned here in this Pasuk. Next, Pasuk Azovimo. This is a great Pasuk. This is a great Pasuk. Pasuk says, that if you see the donkey of someone you hate, oh, thank you so much. I'm the poor person with nothing to drink. Big mitzvah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you see the donkey of your enemy, not just your enemy, right? The word for enemy here is not oyev. What does the pasuk use? In the last pasuk, we used oyevcha. Before it was, if you see your enemy's donkey. Now, it's not just your enemy, it's the donkey of Sona'acha. Who's Sona'acha? The one you hate. You hate that person. And you see the donkey of the person you hate. And the donkey's collapsing under its load. So, the chadalta me'azovlo. How do you read those words? Rashi tells us. Look at Rashi. The chadalta me'azovlo. Bitmiya. You read it? As a question, would you refrain from helping him? Surely you have to, you must, you're obligated to help him. Rabbi Soloveitchik, it wouldn't be a partial class if I didn't quote Rabbi Soloveitchik. So in the Rav Chumash, he writes, this is the only injunction in the Torah expressing itself in the form of a rhetorical question. Is it possible a Jew would be so insensitive so as not to help? If we're obligated to prevent the animal from suffering, if we see a person bent low over his burden, we're obviously obligated to relieve him. Furthermore, if the burden is emotional or spiritual rather than physical, we have the same obligation. It's the only rhetorical question in the entire Torah. The chadalta, 
What, are you not going to help him? What kind of low life are you? Of course you're going to help him. Of course you're going to help him. And not only must you help him, but Azov to Azov Imo. You have this double language describing the way that you have to, the way that you have to help him. So here the Torah says that you have someone you hate, your enemy, the person you hate, and the donkey is about to collapse. You have to go out of your way and go over and help that donkey up. Even if we reject the lifestyle of the person who owns the donkey, even if we abhor and disdain the political views, the attitude, the voting record, the whatever, you got to go over and you got to help. But the Torah doesn't just stop there. Here's something amazing. Let's say there are two people that you know in the same predicament. So you're driving, and on the highway on the side of uh, Palmetto Park Road, I-95, there are two cars stopped. Two cars have flat tires. One of them, it's your best friend. It's your very best friend. You've known each other since kindergarten and you've been on each other's simchas and you would take a bullet for each other and it's your best friend in the whole world. And the other car right next to it is your worst enemy. This is, this is the person since kindergarten you've hated their guts. This is your arch rival, your nemesis, your enemy. You can't stand being in the same room together. And the two cars are next to each other, both have flat tires. Says the Gemara Bab Metziah Lamed Beza Aleph. Who do you have to help? Torah says, Says the Gemara, you go over to your arch rival, your nemesis, your enemy, and you change that flat tire first. Now it's fascinating. Not only does Torah say that you have to help your enemy, Torah says even if your enemy and your best friend are side by side, you have to help them. So this is very interesting. We're going to end with this because we're already late. So our parsha says, in this pasuk we just read, you see chamor sonaacha. You see the donkey of your enemy collapsing. But later in Sefer Dvarim, in Parshas Kiseitze, there the Torah repeats this mitzvah, but says it differently. Lo Don't see the donkey of your brother or his ox falling on the road and hide yourself. You must surely stand up with them. So why later, donkey of your friend? So the Chamor Achicha. What do you mean Achicha? What happened to Sunacha? Here, when the mitzvah is first given, it's given in the context of you see the donkey of your enemy, your nemesis, your rival. The donkey is collapsing, you got to help the donkey. Later, when the mitzvah is repeated in Parshas Kiseitzeh, now it's the donkey of your friend, don't close your eyes, help him out. What happened to your enemy? What happened to your enemy? So the Ramban there in Parshas Kiseitzeh gives a phenomenal insight that I'll end with here. Says the Ramban. Says the Ramban, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Not like the Godfather meant, but because what happens, says the Ramban, if you keep your friends close but your enemies even closer, you know what happens? You transform your enemy into your friend. And how does that work? How does that work? Rav Shlomo Volba has a fantastic insight. The great Mashkiach explains, what's the Hebrew word for cruel? Achzar. Says Rav Volba, you know where cruelty comes from? How is a human being capable of being cruel to another human being? How are you capable of being achzar cruel? Because that person is achzar. They're just a stranger. They're a total stranger to you. They mean nothing. They're not familiar. You have no connection. 
So you could be callous. You could be callous of the other person because you're disconnected and you're disassociated from them. Achzar, they're just a stranger. So when someone is achzar, when they're just a stranger, then you could practice achzarius. Then you're an achzar towards them. But in contrast is the Ramban. When you unburden them, when you share their burden, azov ta azov imo, when you unburden them, you become part of their burden, you have empathy towards them, they go from being your enemy, they go from being the person you hate into your friend, into the person that you love. You can turn around relationships by actually helping someone. In fact, there's a lot of research about this, which we don't have time for, that um, in your attitude towards people, shower the greatest amount of love on the people you like the least, and you will learn that you love them much more. Because the moment you share in their burden, and the moment you seek to unburden them, and that's why I want to offer my own pshat, maybe that's why the Pasuk uses the double language. Azov ta'azov imo. What do you mean, azov ta'azov imo? You see the donkey of your enemy collapsing? Azov, which Rashi says, aziva zulashan ezra azra, offer help. Azov, help them. Ta'azov imo, help them, with them. So first of all, we learn from here, there's a great kliyakar, we'll say it in one second. But you, you have to help with them. But why the double language? So I would like to humbly suggest to you, the reason of the double language is, because when you unburden your friend, there's two people becoming unburdened. They're unburdened of their particular burden, and you're unburdened of your animosity and your hatred and your callousness towards them. The moment you share in someone else's burden, they no longer are the stranger. You are unburdened from being an achzar, a cruel, a cruel person. So you transform your enemy into your friend, dafka, by identifying their hardship, their burden, and participating in it. And with this we really end. The Kliyaka here says, notice it ends with the word emo. You help him with him. Emo, with him. Says the Kliyakar, you're not obligated to help the person. If they're sitting on a couch sipping a pina colada, you're not obligated to step in and help them. And what do you see from here? This resonates for me a lot. writes the Kliyakar on And this is an answer to some of the Meshulachim who knock on the door. People who don't want to work and instead they put themselves as the burden on the community. They're not willing to go out to work. They're not willing to derive an income. They're able to bring income in. They have the means, they have the capacity, they have the good health. They could work. They could provide. But they knock on our door and then they spit in your face because all you gave them was a dollar. You're not giving them everything that they demand. When is it that you're obligated to supplement and to step in and to help out? Emo. So a person's working as hard as they can. They're doing everything they can do. And they still come up short. They can't make ends meet. They can't pay tuition. That's when you're obligated to step up. That's when you're obligated to make up the difference. But if they're not emo, they're sitting on the side, they want you to bear their burden, says the Kliyakar. You see from this Pasuk, you have no, you have no obligation. So with that we end. Wishing everybody a fantastic week. And I apologize to my Moskowitz for going over as usual. Safer Daniel. You don't want to miss Safer Daniel. <laughs>